Economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show. I'm graduate assistant Jacob Michael, and here with me is our host, Dr. Russ McCullough, founder and director of the Gordon Institute, and Dr. Justin Clark, Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. I love your little swagger you throw in there. Hello, this is... <laughs> <laughs> well, the whole time I'm thinking about not some sort of radio voice on. All right, well, welcome. So this coronavirus is running wild. And we thought we should, uh, we've been talking about doing an episode on it, and uh, it doesn't seem like any big uh, cure has shown up lately, so we thought we'd do a little faith in economics on coronavirus. And so, um, you know, we'll get into some of the supply chain issues and the economy maybe later, but I had an ethical dilemma, well, it wasn't my ethical dilemma, but um, it was one of my colleagues. So... I just got back this weekend from Phoenix, and where it was the last session of our uh, executive MBA class, where we do have all internationals basically traveling from all over. And so one of the Chinese students, I think she was Chinese, but I'm not even, I guess, 100% sure of that, but Dr. Mary Lou DeWald told me, called and said, long story short, you're making me pick between my life and and my visa. And so her argument was she didn't want to travel to the last class for the weekend because of the coronavirus. And she, um, for the program, because they are international students, to maintain their visa it's through the education that they're getting, they literally have to have their butts in a seat to be physically present for the continuation of their visa. Uh, that's just part of what the federal government has lined up. So again, her phrasing that I'm going to toss Justin's way is, you're literally making me choose between my life and my visa. And so is there something there in terms of a ethical problem we have by enforcing our rules that they're supposed to be there? Are we supposed to show mercy and whoever says they're scared of Corona, they don't have to come and there's no consequences. Uh, I just thought it was an interesting one to throw your way, Justin. What are your, what are your thoughts? Is she 80 years old? <laughs> <laughs> nope. Probably uh, in her twenties. Okay. Uh, well, they weren't your policies, right? Those are federal policies. Yes. Um, you know, it's kind of at our discretion, so there is leave possibilities, like if there's a, a risk or a danger. Another student called, for instance, where they do have a, a medical, whatever, some sort of medical condition where they can't come because they're sick. And so that you can take an emergency leave, and, you know, if somebody had a repetition of getting those or something. But her claim was, you know, she didn't want to, she's going to die. She really believed this, you know, that she would run the risk of dying or something or high probability of death if she jumped in an airplane and came to class. So I did kind of want to reason through that. Like if that's her belief, uh, you know, do we have to, do we have to cater to that? Do we have a moral obligation or something? Well, if the belief is irrational, then of course you don't have a moral <laughs> obligation to restructure your life 
so that somebody else's irrational uh, whims are satisfied. Yeah. But I mean, if other schools are closing down, how irrational is it? Yeah, so that's the question. Is the belief rational or irrational, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Which that's hard to determine on this one, right? Well, and so I suppose, you know, our our chancellor has, I haven't read the one today, but has sent out correspondence and our president, Regis Mm -hmm. too, but that kind of laying out the facts as they're best known, but there's still risk. People are still getting it. So I, I just thought, eh, it's an interesting one to throw out there. I didn't want to too harshly throw that one under with the risk. You know, as the risk grows, we believe one side and somebody, some student believes the other. Is she willing to drive in a car to the airport? I mean, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I don't I don't I didn't know the whole claim. I just thought it was funny when when Dr. Dwell told me uh hey, you're forcing me to choose between my <laughs> life and my visa. Like we were being oppressive, you know. It was like, "Oh my gosh, like they have no right to miss class and then we have this, you know, we're holding the visa over their head that that's the big club, which is a significant club." So that, I don't know. I just thought it was kind of so I, I think what I'm hearing you say and where I was kind of following on it is that if you have well-defined rules, good rule of law, so to speak, some of the stuff that we talked about and, you know, well-defined property rights or whatever, like say, whether even whether the government came up with those rules, which they did to some extent, and, and maybe there's a blending of our university policy along with that. But if the rules are upfront and well-defined, then... That is the choice she has to make, even if she believes it's her life, I guess. Well, it's also the case. I mean, where would she be flying from? I can't remember if she... I had a student that was coming from, like, Santa Clara, California, where there was maybe some outbreaks. I thought maybe she's not coming from China. Oh, no, no. Yeah, no, so, yeah, uh, no not well, China. No, they're all domestically here in the United yeah, States. Yeah, then it's also... Yeah, all the students are too, for that matter. So. Then it's also the case where she's asking you to make an exception of her, and that all the other students presumably face close to the same amount of risk, right? And she is asking you to make an exception of her, which were all the students to avail themselves of that exception, (laughs) the class wouldn't be able to go forward, right? right? Yeah. So uh, she actually falls uh, afoul of Kant's theory. You're going to get some philosophers. Kant famously uh, said... You should act such that the maxim of your action can be willed into universal law. Is that the categorical imperative? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what he means by that is, so for instance, like if I say I'm not going to repay a debt because it makes me have more money if I don't repay it. Yeah. The maxim, the thing that guides my action is I'm not going to repay my debt because when I, because I want to be richer, right? Yeah. Um, now, Kant says, imagine a world where everybody acted that way. That is, nobody repaid their debt. Yeah. Could you still get richer by taking out a loan and not paying it in that world? And he says, no, you couldn't, because nobody would give you a loan in a world where nobody repays their debt. Right. And so that's what makes it wrong, according to Kant. So you're saying it's kind of like the reason why I don't give to the homeless uh, directly on the streets, coins. No, that's because you're a bad person. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think I'm following that maxim is that unless I know the person. Well, well let's, and let's take another example first. Okay. Right. So right. with her example, she is saying, 
I face this amount of risk, right? And I want you to make an exception of me. Yeah. Where if everybody acted the way she acted, <laughs> the entire class would have to be canceled. Yes. Right? It wouldn't be able to go forward. Right. And so one of the reasons Kant thinks that that's immoral is because you are depending on a practice that everybody else has to follow and that you only get the benefits of that being a societal practice because everybody else follows it and then you yourself are not following it when it's convenient for you. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm trying to think if that's an example of like favoritism to that person or is it more so just that we can't have this work for everybody so we can't have you do it? Is it more just matter-of-factly like, like you're saying that it, it's not something universally applicable so we shouldn't do it? Or is it a matter of it's not right to play favoritism to you. Uh, in Kant's case or in this person's Kant's case. case? In Kant's case, it's a matter of making an exception for yourself. Yeah. And while benefiting from everybody else following a certain set of practices that you are going to discard whenever it's convenient for you. Okay. So you think something about that, uh, that justifies like you know, not stealing either. In a world where everybody steals when it's convenient for them to steal, right. um, there's no such thing as private property. Yeah. Right? Then it runs the private property claim. If, on the other hand, this woman were saying, unlike the rest of the students in this class, there is a serial killer uh, where you're asking me to fly to who explicitly wants to kill me and right. me only. Has already made personal threats to me in my life. Yeah. yeah. Then it wouldn't be making an exception for her because it would be a risk that only she faces. Ah, right? sure. Then we would be justified. And especially if uh, the risk were a justified moral claim to make a special case for her. Yeah. yeah. And especially if that risk were something much higher than 1%. You yeah. Know. Uh, yeah. Right. And so I guess on the flip side then is as if coronavirus got to the point where just the probability is so high and maybe the death rate of 20 somethings is high now or something like that, that of course changes everything. Yeah. Then yeah. presumably nobody has to go to that class. Right. Then right. we would want to get yeah. out the class, which then brings us to the flip side of, other things being canceled, is that irrational at this point, given the data? Uh, the canceling or her fear? No, I'm thinking about other cases now. Jacob, you were just bringing up the, what was it, basketball? The D1 no, the, the D3. The whole NCAA D3 tournaments closed to spectators. In Italy, um, yeah, for the whole month of April, you can't, or no, uh, March, Right. All the soccer stadiums are closed, and all the, all the matches are behind closed doors even. But I'm thinking, from, the, from what I've heard about it, maybe the only rational thing at this point, anyway, would be if it's a heavy concentration of people, whatever, 60 years of age and older, maybe 70 years of age and older. Some events where that was happening or something... But otherwise, we don't have a lot of hardcore evidence that we should be canceling lock, stock, and barrel events of attendance of 500,000. I don't know. Am I wrong on that? I mean, what do you, what do you I have mixed feelings about it because from my understanding is we, it has like a 27 day incubation period. So we really still don't even know how many people in the U S have it alone. And that's to, I don't think they even know how it's transmitted yet. So I think that's the scariest part is we don't really know how people are getting it. Yeah. They know how it's transmitted. Right? I haven't seen that, but I just think oh, if, how if is it's, it? uh, if it's not killing people unless they are already immunocompromised, which is what I basically understand it to be, then we're just passing around something that's even less harmful than the flu. 
influenza A and B are not getting too many headlines right now because of Corona, but they are doing their normal thing like they do every year, which is killing some senior citizens and other people that are immunocompromised. Yeah, but isn't the uh, the death rate overall three per, uh, 3%. between one and three percent for Corona? Uh, for people infected regardless of age. So mm -hmm. given that... I haven't heard uh, that. Given that the like to check your vast, vast majority <laughs> of people who die are uh, over 50, right? That yep. would indicate a much higher death rate for people who get it when they are over 50. Yeah. And the fatality rate for the flu for those people is not that high. Uh, so well, at what point is there a claim morally or otherwise than that? Okay, so yeah, it's just the 50-year-olds that we care about, 50-plus, or whatever that number is, 60-plus, 70-plus. You draw a line wherever you want. We still should shut down the parties for the 20-somethings because inevitably, if they start to get it, even though they're just going to have a bad cold, they're going to go visit the nursing home, and eventually it'll increase the probability that it's going to hit the oldies. Yeah, I mean, when I was in my 20s visiting nursing homes... Uh, <laughs> Uh, look, I mean, I think that there there is a, a plausible because I haven't really heard people make that argument. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable argument, maybe. Yeah, I think that would be a reasonable argument, depending on the rate of transmission and the death rate, which we don't have great numbers on. Yeah. But I mean, I don't think there's a line where you go oh, as soon as it hits you right. know five percent, yeah. then yeah. it's all then we're obligated to do this. I think our reasons for taking restrictions go up as the death rate goes up. Yeah. And, you know, maybe yeah. this is, you know, it's on a scale rather than. All right. Well, that's, uh, that's our fun ethics portion of this. So, well, we can roll into some of the, uh, maybe the economics of it. Uh, where do you think the problems lie in terms of, money-based reasons and the trade-offs we face. So I'm envisioning a world where supply chains are disrupted and, um, you know, we have higher costs of intermediate goods that are going to need to be sourced from somewhere else. And so maybe prices eventually come up or the, and or the just economic activity slows down. At what point does that start to be a real thing? Well, well, and, and this might become a question for you, is I've been kind of wondering, it seems like there's been an outbreak the, like every five or so years from China that's had some kind of disruption of the supply chain. So if, if international trade is just trade between foreign actors, right? So wouldn't they just relocate production to other low-skilled labor areas that has a comparative advantage out of China? Why, why hasn't that happened, I guess? Not a reason to do it. And I, I, but I think this type of thing is a reason, perhaps, that will start so to why shift, but which will have long-term effects. And so I think this is a good spot to take our break because that kind of teases us up with exactly where we'll go with the second half here to talk about the corona economics, so to speak. We'll see you in 30. The Gortney Institute is seeking a graduate assistant. Earn your MBA with full tuition by participating in fun and impactful events. For more information, check out the Gortney Institute website.
To ask a question for our mailbag, send us an email at info at gortneyinstitute.org or call us at 785-248-2551. The Gortney Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Justin or Russ today. Okay, we're back. So I forgot to mention young Jacob was out today because he had a potential corona-related cough or something. No, I'm just kidding. Kidding, kidding, kidding. I shouldn't joke like that, but he did say he threw up. And so. he was in his office three hours and ago. He wasn't, yeah, he was in here. He took my right final today. Are. Maybe it was my final. <laughs> he took the final exam today. Maybe that gave him Ooh, yeah. suggestion. Don't worry, he didn't sit down at least. So yeah, anyway, so that's why young Jacob's not here, uh, but old Jacob left us with a question on relocation of labor, and so um, yeah, the labor would relocate if it looks longer term persistent problem, which I think there's probably enough initiative for that to happen. You know, how I look at that type of thing is in equilibrium in a competitive market, if they chose China first, kind of the first mover advantage is that you've established a relationship, you've got, it's a lot cheaper to stay with who you are as long as you're not getting really big benefits from moving to India or some, or Malaysia or some other place. And so, but now with the disruption of that chain, and if it looks like it might persist due to maybe an economic downturn because of it in China, um, then all of a sudden, yeah, let's start looking, reestablish a new relationship they will probably be competitive in terms of the pricing because I think that globally they'd be pretty competitive. Maybe even the rates would be a little bit lower, but it wasn't low enough to like um, relocate. to say to relocate at the time. What was and so, but I think as you compile that for sure, um, that would lead to relocation, which is only going to further exacerbate the problems China is having if they start to have companies leaving and leaving for good, essentially, is mm -hmm. probably what they would be doing. So yeah, absolutely. So Jason joined us here for the second half, um, producer Jason Dawes, and she has a job in the transportation type business. So you're saying you're starting to see some effects with the stuff you do. We had your, uh, your boss uh, for an interview, when was that, two months ago or maybe longer? Yeah, long time yeah it was back in like November, yeah. I think. So anyway, what, what's happening now with your stuff? So we move quite a bit of freight out to California, and we've noticed that that market has been hit pretty hard by the coronavirus because all of their trucking companies, well, they're waiting for stuff to get into the ports, oh. and nothing's coming from the ports, and so they can't get out of California right now. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it so costs when a they're, lot. So when they're waiting, obviously they're not being productive. Yeah. getting stuff from other locations. And so to send a truck to California is now more expensive because they know they can't get out. Oh. Huh. And so it's a double whammy in and out. 
trying to get to California. And that's one of the areas we saw that uh, has had the biggest hit from this situation. Can you so, give any eyeball, or eyeball estimates on how much more expensive it has gotten? Like, is it doubled or is it? Uh... Um, I would say doubled. I mean, we did have a truck that we couldn't load that we couldn't get moved to California. We had to pay like a grand more than we normally would pay uh, just to get it moving. What percent is that though? Um, that's maybe 33% increase. Okay. 33%. I mean, that's significant. Yeah. 33%. Yeah. So, and then I don't know, I, I always felt like maybe the Californians were maybe freaking out a little faster than otherwise, but they are the closest to uh, China over there. And I don't know. Do you think Justin, is that since you're a, a California boy originally, <laughs> is that, is that possible that they're freaking out a little bit more or is it just, uh, is it all ra purely rational, their level of caution? I mean, they're probably freaking out more. Uh, <laughs> they, I think they freak out more normally. <laughs> Fair enough. So there you have it, straight from the horse's mouth. But there might be, uh, so Jason's saying there's some real things because there is a port there. So that would, that would be part of it, coming in for moving stuff. That, that makes sense as that stuff slows down. So I wasn't thrilled with the central bank's action, if we want to take a little monetary spin on this. So the Fed dropped rates a half, 50 basis points. And I just, with unemployment, you know, where it's at at 3.6% now, the economy doing pretty well. I mean, Trump loved it. He probably would have wanted more because he's thinking – short term anyway, anything that helps us go into November that takes away or, or even even if the economy's heating up beyond where it should be, <clears throat> he'd be favoring that. But oh they they made a pretty big move because I thought a quarter point or something would have been would have been just as good. But to, to drop a half, uh I'm not a big monetary uh stimulus guy, so um, any any thoughts on that, Jacob? You've been doing a little Mises. Uh... I mean, I know Mises wouldn't be a fan. I guess it would depend where like the natural interest rates would be on the marketplace to, de to determine whether or not it'd be that big of an effect. Well, here's how unnatural it was. Uh, my brother called up. His, he's in the kind of credit repair business, and he he heard rates were lower. And compared to where he was at. So he called up his friend and he got a, I think it was a 2.1 or 2.3% 10-year refi on like, I can't remember for sure if it was maybe around 200 grand or a little less than 200 grand. Two, little over 2%. And the reason that I found out the next day, like when he was telling me this, I was like shocked and I think he got maybe a little bit of a sweetheart deal from this broker because they knew each other and it was doing a little business. But for the most part, the broker said, this is the lowest rate I've ever given out to anybody. Wow. In 20 years I've been doing this. And it was just insane. And then, so when I was at the airport on Friday morning, I saw that the 10-year the treasury note dropped. That's a 10-year fixed, dropped uh -huh. to its historical low. Yeah, the so that's obviously what they were doing is they were able, that day when my brother locked in, he locked in that rate. They just took some little spread right over the 10-year treasury and boom, it's golden. I mean, the government's going to pay it back. But, so my point is that that's a distorted market. I and mean, we got 
mortgage loans going out at two and the three percent, they're all back down to those historic lows. And what's the Fed doing? Cutting rates. Well, and the yield curve's been inverted since I, I mean, last spring, hasn't it? Uh, that I don't know. I don't follow the yield curve as much, but okay. Well, because uh, that's just another sign. Of oh the yeah, no, it's a sign, right? Because I mean, the three-month Treasury yield's been higher than the ten-year yield for a time now. Yeah. Every recession has had a inverted yield inverted curve, yield yeah. curve, but not every inverted yield curve has mm -hmm. led to a recession. I think is the same. Yield curve, but I wouldn't doubt it when they're that low. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know where the Fed was coming from if it's just all purely global thinking about the virus. And well, I've seen that they've been thinking someone's someone puts on the aisle about how they're considering even moving to negative interest rates similar to parts of Europe. Oh, well, I don't know. I'm refinancing my house right now. Okay, so you're <laughs> loving it. Well, uh, I mean, I think it works better for me right now. Well, yeah, but. Yourself I, I don't think that we ought to have interest rates this low. Yeah. I think interest rates should. Yeah, it's okay to mm -hmm. yeah. It's okay to bash policy that's putting oh, us yeah. in a bad position long term and then take advantage yeah, of it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean that's just normal uh you know, rule of law, whatever. I, I remember I had a one of the early things I presented at uh, Wayne Angel was here and our local uh business owner Peach asked a question and somehow it was related to taking government subsidies and grants. And she's like, should I feel bad taking uh, a government grant for the, she was restoring our historic movie theater in town. And I'm like, no, I mean, you've got to, you're a business owner. You have to follow the rule of law. So you can be against corporate subsidies and corporate welfare and still take the corporate yeah. welfare as long as you're staying within the law. I mean, you have to, as a business owner, you have an obligation, I guess, similar to our podcast on uh, corporate social responsibility. Uh, Milton Friedman would say they're responsible to maximize profits. And so if I, some government program is out there with money um, and to, to grab it, if, if that's what maximizes profits, but so anyway, I completely agree. Yeah, you can you can ride both fans. Yeah, but I mean this, I, it completely disincentivizes saving, right? Yeah, I mean. Oh yeah, it's, yeah. No, that's what's crazy about the yeah. negative interest rates. I mean, I so sometimes when people go like, I can't believe they they cut it X amount. I just think the whole situation we're in is so far from being a natural interest rate. Well, the type and, of project riding out, even riding out the coronavirus. I mean, I, I kind of think it's going to, it's going to be what it's going to be, but I'm not sure adding another distortion to the economy of cutting the interest rates that much, or who knows what the next fiscal or monetary policy around the corner might be. Um, that's just going to, uh, I think fuel, we're getting further and further away from where the where the market would be operating normally, and it gets more and more difficult for people to do the actions that they think would be best for themselves in a cloudy environment of uncertainty. I got a question for you, Russell. I'm thinking about it about the coronavirus because you you probably remember back a little further than I do. Why why does this one seem like it's being so so much more dramatic? Because I don't remember SARS or H1N1 being nearly this impactful. I don't know the answer to that. Ebola was a lot more severe and critical, but it didn't get to the countries like this one is. Okay. So I think because we're hitting more countries quicker, yeah, even though it's not curious. quite as harmful as something like Ebola, I, I think that's what di distinguishes this one. 
I think our social media and, you know, instead of reporting news, just reporting something that gets headlines, mm. I think is an equal problem contributing to, mm -hmm. to the hysteria. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's sad that we don't, I, it was so breathtaking to listen to the BBC. I'm not saying they're probably all, I'm sure to some degree they do it, but going to the airport on Friday morning at 3.30 in the morning or something, the BBC was on the NPR and they interviewed this guy that they just interviewed from Tehran and, and it was kind of a weird interview, but it was just, it was real. Like it wasn't staged to want to get, headlines to kind of give that pizzazz it was just very matter of fact like we're just reporting what's going on mm -hmm. and i'm like gosh we could really use to get back to that instead of the dramatized headlines yeah i didn't think that because like even today all i've seen on social media is about ted cruz quarantining himself oh is that right I have, yeah I he had contact that. with someone who confirmed that the coronavirus so him and like a couple other lawmakers have completely quarantined themselves how do we have, um, I don't know, Justin, if you'd be the right one to throw this, but the president has caught heat. Of course, he's going to catch heat no matter what he does. But what do you think the right role is for the president or the president's staff? In this case, uh, Mike Pence, vice president, is kind of the head speaker anyway to kind of monitor and broadcast to the public. I mean... On, on situations like this, what, what do you think would be the best way versus um, other ways? I don't know. You obviously want someone who seems like they have, you know, a firm hand on the wheel to try to uh, dissuade people from panicking irrationally. Yeah. I think that's the tough part is like the panicking irrationally versus the being prepared like, yeah we don't know exactly where this is coming from so. yeah and uh given that we do have a kind of you know corporate press and corporate media that loves it when people are irrational um, <laughs> right. that, yeah that's what catches the headline it's yeah irrationality is really the thing that gets the spotlight yeah i'm trying to you know people freaking out is yeah. what the news yeah. has be has become. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know what the what the right approach is. I just know I think we're in we're in for some pain, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's probably hard to say the right words at the right time. Certainly you do gotta lean on multiple experts in the field and I, I've heard some really good sound rational thinking there when they're referencing but the headline after headline, if you really listen closely they never say proportionately another person died today. They, you know, they don't say that it was an 85-year-old that was uh, suffering or almost near death anyway or whatever. You know, it's just another person died today in Corona in, in Seattle, Washington. That's the headline. I mean, you don't know if the person's 16 or <laughs> 32, but, and of course, they would tell you if it was 32. So you pretty much know that it was an 85-year-old or something because it would be a great headline if it was a 32-year-old. Great headline, not obviously something great. Yeah. I, I think it was Michael Crichton at one point, and he said, when people read the news and when it's anything that you're an expert in, you immediately realize that the people who are reporting on the in the press about things that you are an expert in 
they have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> and you realize that every time it's something that you're an expert in. Yeah. And then as soon as it's something that you're not an ex not an expert in, you forget that. Right. You know? <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Sometimes it just seems like they've been more masters of deception than than anything. So pushing pushing an agenda here or there. All right. Well, any last things to wrap up our Corona talk? All right. Hearing none. So I'd like to thank you all for listening. Um, I guess we didn't say uh, any faith-related Corona stuff, did we? Darn it. Oh, well. I always try to work in something, but we probably, I think some uh, church services and other things have been impacted by it, certainly, and especially where oh, you know what church they just proportionate they, amount of they closed Sunday maybe. mass for the first time in like in the hundred year history of this church. Actually, on the Muslim side of life, it was huge somewhere where they for some celebration they had, but it was the first time ever it's ever been canceled. Also, wow. So yeah, definitely crossing a different faiths for the coronavirus, and so. Such a big part of people's practice of faith is usually about getting together in a community and mm -hmm. shaking hands at least, yeah. uh, yeah. and coming together. And so it'll be interesting to see how this uh, yeah. impacts. A little more fist bumping going on. And, uh, <laughs> my pastor at our church even did elbows one time when he was, uh, I think he was sick or something, or he might have been sick and he's just like, just going to give you an elbow. <laughs> Didn't even want to do fist bump just in case. Because uh, that is something serious. I think the age demographic does tend to be a little bit older at some of the services. So that, yeah. that uh, could be an unfortunate way with this type of thing going around. So, all right. Well, on that high note, I'd like to thank you all for listening to our podcast. Uh, this has been a presentation of the Wharton Institute. And we sure appreciate you listening. Make sure to tell your friends and uh, give us the old five-star ranking. And that'll help us get out our word to more and more folks. So other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks. Mm -hmm.